asks them, what does it mean to be godly or what is godliness? A lot of people, especially single people, will say, well, I'm just looking for a godly boyfriend or a godly girlfriend or a godly spouse. Okay, And a lot of that usually translates to this idea of, well, godly just means I want them to love Jesus. That's, that's the foundation. That's all that's really needed. Everything else we can talk about. But as long as they love Jesus, is going to be fine. And that's usually what it comes down to. But the question that I ask them, if I get this chance to talk, if we uh, get into this, is which Jesus? Because there are a lot of different Jesuses in the world. Okay, If they say they want somebody to... We talking about Jehovah's Jesus. So the first created being of Jehovah God, Michael the Archangel, who is also Jesus. From the Jehovah's Witness website, just in case some of you have never heard this before, let me read you um, a little excerpt that they have explaining this doctrine. The spirit creature called Michael is not mentioned often in the Bible. However, when he is referred to, he is in action. In the book of Daniel, Michael is battling wicked angels. In the letter of Jude, he is disputing with Satan. In Revelation, he is waging war with the devil and his demons. By defending Jehovah's rulership and fighting God's enemies, Michael lives up to the meaning of his name, which is, Who is like God? But who is Michael? At times, individuals are known by more than one name. For example, the patriarch Jacob is also known as Israel, and the apostle Peter as Simon. Jesus Christ, before and after his life on earth, the Bible indicates that Michael is another name for him. Let us consider scriptural reasons for drawing that conclusion. It gets weirder. Archangel. God's word refers to Michael the archangel in Jude 9. This term means the chief angel. Notice that Michael is called the archangel. This suggests that there is only one such angel. In fact, the term archangel occurs in the Bible only in the singular, never the plural. Moreover, Jesus is linked with the office of archangel. Regarding the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 states, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a commanding call with an archangel's voice. Thus, the voice of Jesus is described as being that of an archangel. This scripture therefore suggests that Jesus himself is the archangel Michael, army leader. The Bible states that Michael and his angels battled with the dragon and its angels, Revelation 12.7. Thus, Michael is the leader of an army of faithful angels. Revelation also describes Jesus as the leader of an army of faithful angels. And the Apostle Paul specifically mentions the Lord Jesus and his powerful angels. His angels, Michael's, and Jesus and his angels. Since God's word nowhere indicates that there are two armies of faithful angels in heaven, one headed by Michael and one headed by Jesus, it is logical to conclude that Michael is none other than Jesus Christ in his heavenly role. What they fail to see is that in Daniel chapter 10 refers to Michael as one 
of the chief princes, indicating that there are more. But that is a lesson for another time. I would lead a study of the cults any day. I love this kind of stuff and just kind of diving deep into it, but just throwing that out there. But So, that's one Jesus. How about the Jesus of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church? Jesus is the firstborn spirit child of Elohim and one of his goddess wives. His brother is Lucifer, or Satan. He came to this earth in the same way we have come into this earth, this quote by Joseph Smith. Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. That's from the Mormon Doctrine, 1966, page 547. Furthermore, Brigham Young declared, He, this is the Christ, was not begotten by the Holy Ghost. Jesus, our elder brother, was begotten in the flesh by the same character that was in the Garden of Eden and who is our Father in heaven. That is the Journal of Discourses. Is this the Jesus we want people to love and be considered godly? There are a lot of people who claim this title of Christian who would include the Mormons in that category, or the Jehovah's Witness, because they say, well, they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they believe in the Holy Spirit, they believe in the same things we do, just some differences. Is this who we are referring to? How about the Jesus of Islam? Isa, or Isa, a great prophet, not the Son of God, or God in the flesh, but a great prophet nonetheless that has titles and honors given to him that even the great prophet Muhammad does not have on himself. That is a high honor, of course. Or how about the guy who wears the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, or the Jesus is my buddy, or and here. Yes, we can be called friends of God when we are adopted into the family of God, but what people don't seem to understand is that Jesus is not just and our buddy, but Jesus is our Lord, and Jesus is our King, and therefore deserves the respect that is to be given to him in such ways. So when someone says that they love Jesus, my response is often, which one? The New Testament, when it speaks of godliness, it is usually always paired with truth. What is the truth? To be godly, we must know what the truth is. And the truth about who Christ is. The truth of the gospel and the rejection of that which, it stand, which stands against it. Let me show you a few of these passages here. 1 Timothy, again, chapter 6, says this, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says this, The saying is trustworthy, tr- trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. This is an example given to us of godliness. Go to 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Titus 1.1 Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Then, of course, we have the verse in Second Peter where we add godliness. And then finally, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But of course, in the world that we live in today, truth is what we want it to be. Truth is what we make it. One of my biggest pet peeves when people, when I'm talking to somebody about what is truth, they usually conclude with, well, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Okay? They make truth to be a non-absolute. There is no such thing as absolute truth. However, when you declare that there is no such thing as absolute truth, are you not? statement that truth cannot be absolute. So in that way, the argument falls flat. The logic of the world is folly. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says that what we preach is considered folly to the world, and yet all that the world preaches to us is true foolishness and folly, especially when it comes to someone's quest for truth. It's interesting I see all these different Discovery Channel and History Channel type shows that come out a number of years ago. Morgan Freeman did one, The Search for God, I think it is what it was called. And he went around the world to different temples and churches and religions to try and find God, to try and find the truth that is God. And the, the Christian representation of that show was uh, Joel Osteen. <laughs> and so I think... He probably should do a season two and go somewhere else. (laughs) That's just my opinion. 
But we see these different things where they go in their search for truth. Like they think that they can find it in just the, the most obscure places. The Bible is the source of truth. It is the revealed word of God. This whole movement leads to this kind of idea of what we might call seeker churches. Seeker-sensitive churches. Churches that cater to the worshiper as opposed to what and who we should be worshiping. A seeker church, you might walk in, they've got the dim lights, as us young people apparently don't like light, because we're not going to be reading our Bibles anyway, so what does it matter if we can see? They have the band up on stage with the loud music and those drawn-out synthesizers that kind of get you into this almost hypnotic state where you're going along with the crowd and doing what you need to do, but it caters to the person. There's a church in my area that their, their mission when they started was to church the unchurched. It wasn't church the Christians who were not going to church, but it was seeking that everybody who did not go to church in my area, they wanted to be a church for them. They didn't want to be a church for God and what he requires from his word. They didn't want to be a church that honored Christ in the way that he demands and commands that he be honored, but they wanted to be a church that fit the need of the person rather than God. I see posts all the time on Facebook and Twitter groups of people church shopping, or some people call it church dating, which I think is a horrible term that we see dating like that. (laughs) But they're looking for churches and they say things like, well, I'm just looking for an LGBTQ affirming church. I'm just looking for a church that has equal amount of preaching time for men and women and youth, and maybe a kid sermon every now and then. Or I'm looking for a church where the youth program is really popping. The first sign of an apostatizing church is the abandonment of sola scriptura. And we're here in the Reformation month. This is, if, if Easter is kind of our Super Bowl, this is kind of our Independence Day month for the Ref- Reformed Church. So we're in October. We have to mention one of the solas at least one time through here. But if you turn back to 1 Tim- Timothy chapter 4, we read this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to de- deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Later times. So this is speaking of the time from Christ's first advent and the consummation at his return. So this is, this is now. Okay, we see a lot of books when you go into Barnes & Noble. Are we living in the end times? Yes, we are. Okay, we don't know when Christ is coming back, but we are living in these, later, these latter times. So just in my own lifetime... I've seen my fair share of apostasy when it comes to the church. Okay? How many of you know Rob Bell or have at least heard the name Rob Bell? Okay? Rob Bell, for those who may not have heard, he was back in the day referred to as to be the next Billy Graham. There was an article written about him because of his charisma and his 
okay with looking at the scriptures and teaching the truth of God. He was going to be the next Billy Graham. We'll come back to him in a moment. How many of you have heard of Joshua Harris? Okay, He wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye when he was 21 years old, and it was this kind of revolutionary book for millennials when it came to this modern-day dating scene. And we'll come back to him in just a moment. Marty Sampson, a worship leader for Hillsong Church in Australia, has also renounced his faith just about a year and a half to two years ago. A movement that I've mentioned before in different uh, scenarios is the deconstruction movement. Now, this is a relatively new movement uh, in my in my lifetime. It's usually led up by these hip, young pastors, if you want to call them that. They're usually youth leaders that take a bunch of kids from their youth group and start a church, and it's usually really bad. But essentially deconstructing your faith is this idea that you take a look at everything you learned while you were growing up in youth group or your parents' church or your grandparents' church, whatever it might be, and you look at all the things wrong with it. And you start from the top and you start to pull things apart and deconstruct your faith so that you can reconstruct your faith to fit your own wants and needs and desires when it comes to what you want to believe about God and his church and Christ. There is an uh, Instagram page that... It's, it's interesting to go on to some of these Instagram pages and see who follows them. You never want to call them out for it, but it's kind of interesting. But there's a page called Dirty Rotten Church Kids. And this page is complete nonsense. But they, they are the leaders in this kind of deconstruction movement. But what they do is they, they bring in a lot of the younger minds, the youth group or the young adult ages, and they teach them how to deconstruct their faith. And then we go into these um, times where we have these churches that fly the different flags out front and, and don't open their Bibles ever because it's all about just what we feel and how we want to act. God is happy with you, whoever you are, however you want to live, God is okay with that because your sins are forgiven. That's essentially the message that is preached in these movements. But what we see is that is common in every single case in these situations is a departure from the truth, is a departure from sola scriptura. This reevaluation of the truth that they already know or finding new ways to bring truth into their lives. It's no different than going around the world and going into temples and different synagogues and trying to find truth there. It is no different whatsoever. These people will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And this is, of course, referring to those false teachers who would rise up and bring teachings into the church in these latter days, and we see that everywhere we go. Coming back to Rob Bell. Like I said, at one point he was called the next Billy Graham. And of course, Graham had his own issues, but we can talk about that later. But that's another time. The point is, he was making waves. The young, he was bringing, he was making church cool again. And of course, many of us know that the moment you try and make church cool is when things start to fall apart. The point is, he sort of revolutionized this kind of short video uh, mentality that we have today. I blame him 
for a lot of these short attention span type things because he would make these little videos with the nice music in the background and he would take usually a single word or an object and he would push scripture around that particular word or object as opposed to taking scripture and expanding on it. So he would take something like a tomato and find a certain way to make a tomato godly or Christian. And he was, he made a lot of uh, following because he's very charismatic. He is a very likable guy when it comes to watching his videos. This infamous book called Love Wins. And a book where he begins his descent into uh, public apostasy and universalism. All because of a painting that he saw of his grandmother's. This painting was a cross that was like a bridge. And on one end was heaven, and on one end was hell. And the painting depicted these people crossing the bridge. And he looked at that, and he thought, that's interesting. People just kind of come and go as they choose. What if hell and heaven isn't what we think it is? This eternal place of torment or this eternal place of bliss. But for us, we can go back and forth. That those who we think will be in hell will be in heaven because eventually God will forgive them of everything and invite them into the kingdom. And so we see that and that blew up as well. Um, Joshua Harris. He was young when he wrote, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He was 21. And the book kind of sparked a purity culture movement for millennials. You would have those little purity rings that a lot of the youth group people would wear um, until they graduated. But Christianity uh, became kind of a fad for a lot of these people. Joshua Harris later disavowed the book and apologized for it. In 2015, he stepped down from his position as lead pastor of his church to broaden his views and connect to other parts of Christianity. Again, we have this look of deconstructionism, this, this, this going out and seeking truth somewhere else. But it usually means that they seek after other things and not Christ based on what we see in Scripture. And his, he and his wife later separated, and he stated in 2019, I am no longer a Christian. Apostasy, of course, we know is nothing new. As we know, two, those who went out from us, who left the faith, did so to show that they were never of us to begin with. They never belonged to God. It was false, a false conversion. It was a facade, a charade, an image that they wanted to put on, and maybe they believed it for a little while. But eventually, those who do not belong to God find their way further away from him. And if you look at people like Rob Bell today, and his slide into apostasy has taken new forms. The early church, of course, had its own slew of this kind of thing, and there is nothing new under the sun. On Amazon, I did a search for certain things just to see what would come up. Signs and wonders, tarot cards for Christians. It's a real thing. Then we have holy laughter and drunk in the spirit. So there is a movement... Um, it's IHOP, the International House of Prayer, not the International House of Pancakes. In fact, the International House of Pancakes is probably safer than this place. But they talk about 
holy laughter and drunk in the Spirit, where the Spirit slays you in such a way that when you stand up to give your testimony, you're flopping around, you're, you're mumbling because you're so filled with the Spirit, you can't even communicate the truth of the gospel because the Spirit is inside you so much. That's what drunk in the Spirit is, and it has become a fad in certain places. Some say Christian yoga. And if you have researched yoga at all, it is a form of worship in Eastern religions. But we have taken it and putting the word Christian on it automatically makes it good and acceptable. But the number one thing is that it pulls us away from the truth and what God requires of us. It is, the essent- it is essentially the I'm spiritual but not religious kind of movement we see today. And that makes its way into the church. But a true and godly believer is one who studies the scriptures and lives by the word of God, who doesn't allow themselves to be pulled in different directions by the different winds of doctrine that are all around us, but stand firm on the foundation of truth. The doctrine of demons, David Guzik writes this, demons are theology majors and have a system of doctrine. You look at the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? That's where it all starts. That's where every kind of apostasy starts. Did God actually say? The Bible is really clear on this issue. Are you sure that's what this means? Someone who is not in the Word on a regular basis is going to stumble to answer this question. Others will deceive by rewording it. Just pray about it. What is God saying to you personally? I've been to several Bible studies where they'll take a passage, and you sit in a circle, the leader will, will read the passage, and then he'll go around the circle. All right, what did, what did this passage mean to you? specifically. Okay, that's good. What about you? Oh, that's, that's a different perspective. That, that's interesting. Okay, how about you? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's good too. Okay, let's move on to you. So you get all these different answers, and I don't think there was as much heresy back in the days of the councils that there are in modern day Bible studies when they start talking about what does it mean to you. Here's the thing. Satan doesn't care what you believe as long as you don't believe in the truth. Every false religion and belief is demonic as it destroys the gospel and throws Jesus out with it. Verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These false teachers are insincere and liars. John Knox has this famous quote. I have never feared the devil but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. For a Christian, Satan and demons are not to be feared. We do not go chasing them. We do not seek them out. A believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit will not share residency with a demon. What a Christian fears, and should fear, is bringing reproach to the name of Christ. A Christian should fear to live in such a way that makes him look no different from the rest of the world. To live in such a way that is ungodly. The godly seek to imitate Christ and obey Him. 
The ungodly seek to imitate the world and live according to their own flesh and their own desires and to stay as way, away from the biblical Christ as they possibly can while still looking and sounding like a Christian. This brings us back to the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or anything like that. They have a lot of the same language that we do. They're wearing the mask of Christianity. And this is a great deception. Their consciousness, their consciences are so seared with insincerity and deception, they do not listen to reason, they cannot listen to reason, and they don't care who they are leading to hell because they honestly believe what they're preaching is the true gospel. Verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Another sign of ungodliness. This is an interesting thing. Forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from certain foods. Now this can mean a number of different things. It is more godly to command someone not to get married or eat certain foods, because then we can devote ourselves to Christ in different ways. And of course, there are, we'll get to this in just a moment, and from 1 Corinthians. But here's the thing, the average, the, the majority of people will get married. The average people get married now in the United States, though, I want to point this out, is 32 years old. And this is not necessarily because people are trying and just can't find somebody, but we live in a culture that doesn't view marriage as a good thing. We live in a culture that if you, we actually have laws that if you are with somebody for a certain amount of time, you are legally together. You can have the same insurance. You can have all this kind of stuff. You're a, you're a common law person. Our culture does not value the unity that is marriage. You don't need to get married. You just need to find somebody who's willing to put up with you and you put up with them for the rest of your lives or until you find somebody better and just have fun. That's what our culture says relationships are. And because of that, we have people who don't want to get married. They want to live out their lives by just having fun and when they're old enough that the young people aren't interested in them, then they'll settle down and get married. Twelve years ago, the average age to marry was 27. In 1950, it was between 20 and 22. On top of this, in the context of a church, the Roman Catholic Church, it was 1139 at the Second uh, Lateran, Lateran Council when it was decided that priests would be forbidden to marry. We have ungodly patterns in this realm all throughout history. Some people are called to singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, 8-9 To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It's a calling. But to force someone who is not called to be single into singleness opens a door to all kinds of problems and sins. A person is not more godly just because they choose not to get married or stay single. Both are callings from the Lord, and both are to be treated with the respect as any calling from the Lord should be treated. But the calling comes from the Lord, not from man. But 
This can be even so much more. Everything created by God is good. Food is good. Marriage is good. Proverbs 18.22 He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And all the wives here say amen. But we're Presbyterians, so they won't say it out loud. We are to enjoy the things But the problem here is not the enjoyment of them. It is the misuse of them. To place something above the gospel or to add it to the gospel as a fundamental, whether you eat, whether you drink, do all things for the glory of God. One aspect of godliness is to believe this, to enjoy the things that God has given to us and recognize his goodness and his mercy for giving them to us because he is the only one who can give truly good gifts. But ultimately, this is legalism, this false way of looking at it, ourselves thinking or acting like we are more godly than others. We all have preferences, we all have bias, but we must be careful not to make a law where there is no law. To cross that line, or to add to the gospel, or to make demands of someone when it is not our place to do so. Then all of this leads to verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Anything that is not true or goes against the truth, have nothing to do with it. A godly person does not pursue such things. A godly person does not believe such things. It goes back to the earlier, which Jesus are we believing in? The Jesus that is revealed to us through Scripture, the inspired Word of God, a Jesus who saves His people to the uttermost, a Jesus who advocates for His elect to the Father, a Jesus who is the eternal Son of God, or a mythological creation of a Jesus who is no different than a great angel, a Jesus who was once a man who became a God because of obedience, a Jesus whose death cannot fully save a person, thus when they die they go to purgatory in order to pay off their remaining sins. A godly person embraces and loves the true Christ. Our focus must be on heavenly things. Our authority and truth must come from the word and the testimony of Jesus Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This next part the, in verse 7 that I just read, the Greek word Paul uses here, I'm not going to uh, attempt it because Dr. Battle's sitting right there, but the word used for train yourself, or the King James says exercise. The Greek word is where we get the word gymnasium. The Greek put a lot of emphasis on this physical training of your bodies. Okay, We know the Olympics, and there was another set of games that happened in Corinth, but Paul uses frequent imagery like this in his letters to Timothy, here to exercise and to train towards godliness. In the second letter, he talks of his finishing the race. To train your body is of value. Paul continues, I think we should take care of ourselves, to not abuse our bodies, to to be lazy, to get up and train ourselves for what we have to do. But this kind of training is only for this life. It is only beneficial to us now. Our bodies will, we will die and our bodies will decay. We will get new bodies, but the bodies we have right now will decay. But to train ourselves in godliness 
is beneficial to both this life and the life to come. When I was in high school, I hated it. I hated it. I was bullied. I was sh- I'm still short. I'm not the tallest guy in the world, but I was short. So when I was in high school, I loved working out. I bulked up. I, I had some muscle. I look back and think, wow, I was better then than I am now. Got out of high school. I got saved, and now I don't care. I don't care what people think of me. I'm not trying to impress anybody but my wife. Okay? She is the only one who gets to say what I look like. And so far, I'm okay in her eyes. Uh, give me a few more years. We'll see. But the self-love movement that we see is part of this false gospel of the world that is going around today. This idea that our worth is defined by what we look like instead of who we belong to. I read an article from Vogue magazine published in 2015, just so you wouldn't have to. Um, and when I got done, it just I was sad. I was very sad reading this article, but it was, it was rules for Instagram. And I hoped while reading it that it was satire, because as I was reading it, I'm like, this cannot be real. This cannot be real. And as far as I know, it was. There was nothing that indicated that it was satire. But just because I know you're all wondering, the rules for posting a selfie. If it doesn't get 11 or more likes, you need to be taking it down because, and I quote, it sucks. The amount of stock placed on the approval from the world for our bodies is just tragic. The world needs the gospel. The world needs to stop focusing on the here and now about the things that are temporary and to look up to the things that are eternal and the things to come. Chapter, or verse 10 says this, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. Our hope is not in a preacher. Our hope is not in an author. Our hope is not in a prophet from 1800s who wrote another testament of Jesus Christ. Our hope is the living and true God, who extends his call of repentance to all people. But those of us who are among the elect, who have been called by God and redeemed, we are to live godly lives, to reject the world and the things it offers us that can never truly satisfy. And Paul's charge to Timothy is to set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And in closing, I want to briefly, and I promise it is brief, go through these five qualities that a believer must set. Speech. Psalm 141, how often do we make this our prayer? Set a guard, O Yahweh, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. How often do we, when we think of godliness, seek this prayer? What does that mean? Paul tells us in Ephesians, that no corrupting talk comes out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear Watching your, ne- your mouth is not just about cussing. While that can be a part of it, a godly person is characterized by their speech, how they talk, build up, to encourage, to give grace, to lift up the body, and to stand out from the world. This would also include those sins that tend to get overlooked, such as slander and gossip. 
What about our conduct as godly people? Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The apostles like to give lists in the New Testaments. Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our conduct does not just include the things that people can see, but in private as well, our personal lives. What do our lives look like when we are home alone? Do we hold ourselves accountable for the things that we do or the things that we think or the things that we say when nobody else is around to hear it? I've often used this illustration when I talk to youth when it comes to making them aware of the things that go on in their lives, especially their thought life. If somebody... and put it behind your ear for a week, and it recorded every thought that you had. And then at the end of the week, we gathered your family, your friends, and your church, and we put the computer chip up on the screen, and it showed everybody everything you thought for that week. How would you feel? I'd be horrified. We must be aware of the things that we are thinking and the things we are doing when nobody else can see those things or is around. Love. I won't speak to this too much because in two weeks, Pastor is going to be expounding on this from the Second Peter passage, but I will say that a godly person's life should be marked by love, how they love, what they love, who they love, and their response to love. Faith, what this has all been about. We have to remember that this is not a private faith. This is not something we keep to ourselves. They used to say, never talk about politics or religion at the dinner table because you never know who you might offend. And now all we do is talk about politics at the dinner table and everybody gets offended. So why not throw religion in there too? Don't shove your faith down my throat is what a lot of people will say. Yet Jesus calls us to go and make disciples. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's offensive, but it's a message everyone needs to hear. Our faith must be on display for the rest of the world. We stand on the shoulders of giants. The apostles died for their faith because they knew that there was nothing else of greater importance. We are in the month of October, the Reformation month. Imagine Martin Luther or Calvin just saying, well, that might be true for you. I'm, I'm going to believe this, but that might be true for you. Okay, here's, here's my 90 stump theses. You can read them if you want, but I'm just going to step back and let you do your own thing. They knew the risk. They knew the importance, the crucial message that they had, and they stepped out for it. We must hold. We must stand firm. Our faith is not our own, but it is from God who has purchased us by the blood of Christ. Finally, purity. This is not just sexual, though that's a part of it. But how quick are we to repent? How quick are we to notice sin creeping up in our lives and how quickly do we deal with it? How quickly do we put it to death? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So in closing, God has called us to godliness when he saved us. This is not for our own benefit, but to all we come in contact with the final verse in chapter 4 of this First uh, Timothy passage, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers.
God is the one who does the saving. Of course he is. He is the Savior. There is no power in us to save ourselves or to save anybody else, but by our witness, our testimony, and the preaching of the gospel, God can call his elect to himself through us. We can be instruments in that. And of course, every time I preach, I have to throw a quote in from R.C. Sproul. And he says this, God alone grants salvation, but he is pleased to use his people as instruments in bringing salvation to others. Let us, as we reflect on this, remember what we are going back to. Loving others in deed and in truth. And if there is anyone here today who does not know the saving power and love of Christ Jesus, I pray that today is the day of your repentance, that today is the day that you turn from your sin and turn to the only Savior who can rescue you. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for this saving power of Christ that has called us to yourself. Lord, we are thankful that you do not leave us on our own, that you have given us your word, that you have given us your tools, that you are not a God of silence, that you are not a God that is far off from us, but you are a God who has made yourself known to us how, through Christ, we may please you, Lord. We are thankful for Christ's intercession, his work where he intercedes for us before the Father, that we are made righteous by his righteousness, Lord. I pray for everybody in this room today, Lord, that you would um, bless the preaching of, the, of your word today, that they would hear and, and obey, Lord, that it was not my words, but Christ's that were spoken. Father, bless the rest of our time together. In Christ's name, amen.